0: The following content is suited for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. This is Infertile Millennial, a podcast where we chat all things infertility, IVF, and surviving your fertility journey. I'm Emily Orlando, reminding you that you're not alone. Let's chat fertility. Welcome back to another episode of Infertile Millennial. I'm your host, Emily, and today we have special guest Jennifer joining us. She's going to be sharing her almost 20-year battle with endometriosis, infertility, and pregnancy loss as well. But before we get into her story, I actually felt like today was a really great day to chat about where I've been and where this podcast has been, and it's Jennifer's story who actually made me want to sit down and discuss holding space for yourself. If you listened to our last episode, you will know that I shared my story with ectopic pregnancy and the many, many weeks it took to go through that, as well as the healing process and what it's like to process all of the emotions and the physical toll that ectopic pregnancies can take on us. Jennifer's story really reminded me exactly what I had been feeling over the past few months and that was that it's important to hold space for yourself. You're going to see that this is actually a very common theme in Jennifer's story but also in pretty much everybody who's struggling with grief or infertility and everything in between that we often forget to hold space for ourselves, allow ourselves the time to grieve and allow ourselves to really feel exactly what we're going through during this very long journey. So that's sort of what I've been up to the last few weeks is I was giving myself permission to grieve. I was giving myself permission to feel what I needed to feel. I was giving myself permission to take a break. In a future episode, I will get you guys up to date on where we're at currently in our fertility journey, but that is for another time. Today, I really wanted to focus on holding space for yourself. Maybe you're wondering what exactly does that mean? I feel like what we're about to talk about can actually work for everybody who's listening. You don't necessarily have to be going through infertility or pregnancy loss or grief. This is an important thing to do for yourself no matter what, no matter what you're going through. Holding space for yourself can mean a lot of things. It can mean setting boundaries for yourself, protecting your peace, setting aside time to tune into yourself, your feelings, your emotions, your needs. It can mean to truly give space. It can mean giving yourself compassion less judgment on yourself, listening to yourself, mind, body, and soul, connecting with yourself. All of those things are really important, not only going through infertility and grief and everything, but just in the daily, the day-to-day motions. So whether or not you're going through infertility or experiencing grief currently, here are a few ways that you can tune into holding space for yourself. So number one, I think is one of the most important things especially going through infertility is setting boundaries knowing what works for you and what doesn't sticking up for your emotions sticking up for your peace so if certain things are bothering you and you just feel like you can't be around certain situations in the moment that's completely fine it's okay to set boundaries communicate those boundaries and hold tight to them. Do not cave on your boundaries. That is one way that you can really hold space for yourself and keep in control of what you're experiencing and what you're going through. For me, one of the boundaries that I've set for myself is actually to stay off of Facebook as much as possible. I'll let myself scroll here and there, but I know as someone who's experienced loss recently and years and years of infertility, that seeing pregnancy announcements is something that is difficult for me. So one way that I can set a boundary is to stay off of Facebook where those are incredibly common, especially around the holidays. So that is a boundary that I've set for myself and I've been really good about sticking to it. I'm pretty proud. (laughs) Another really great thing that you can do for yourself that I could definitely be better at is journaling your feelings. Setting aside time, whether it's daily, weekly, or monthly. Honestly, the more frequent, the better is to sit down and journal out your feelings. It's a really great way to hold space for your feelings and emotions and to tap into what you're really feeling. And I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but one of my one of the most helpful things i've ever done especially around those important dates like you know when it would have been your due date or when you would have found out the gender of your baby or maybe it's the anniversary of your miscarriage it's really important to set aside time in the morning to just do a free write brain dump where you just spill all your thoughts and feelings on the page and you'll be really surprised at what comes out. You might have gone into it thinking I'm going to be an emotional mess. I'm going to be crying the entire time but you might surprise yourself and find oh I actually feel you know really grateful for how much strength that I've had throughout this process or maybe you'll find that oh I guess I was really angry about a certain thing that happened during this time and it's a really great way to understand exactly how you're feeling. Something else that I have learned over the past year of seeing my therapist was also to practice mindfulness daily. It's something that a lot of us are poor at doing but it has helped me a lot with recognizing my triggers, with recognizing certain situations cause me to feel a certain emotion. And so mindfulness really just means trying to be more present in the moment, being aware of the feelings you're feeling, of the things you're doing one thing at a time not looking too far into the future but rather focusing on the present moment and it is something that you do have to continuously do it's like exercising but for your brain and your mind and your body and it's just you know being present in the moments feeling the feelings you're having being aware of everything around you And you know, there's a lot of different mindfulness meditations online, a lot of resources, there's mindful walks that you can do, mindfulness practices that you can do. So if you're new to mindfulness, I highly recommend looking into some uh, meditations. I think those will be really helpful to getting you into the groove of being more mindful. Because I think when we are able to be in the present moment, we're able to, again, hold space for ourselves and be present and connected with ourselves and have a better understanding of who we are and how we're feeling. Finally, another way to hold space for yourself is to offer yourself more compassion and speak kinder to yourself. We're already going through so much that we don't need to be our own worst enemy during this time. I know I was really bad at it. I think a lot of women, especially who've gone through miscarriages, are a lot more harder on themselves than they need to be. So offering yourself compassion, again, there are really great self-compassion meditations out there. Um, Another thing you can do is write down positive affirmations every day to yourself, whether you write them down or you stand in front of the mirror and just list three things you love about yourself. I think being kind to ourselves, catching when we are talking bad about ourselves and reworking it into something positive is also really helpful. But I think when we're kinder to ourselves and offer ourselves more compassion, we are able to feel less guilty about our grief. I think a really common thing that women feel going through pregnancy loss is the guilt they feel for how long they've been grieving. I think sometimes we're really hard on ourselves and are like, you know, I shouldn't be sad today. And why am I feeling this way? It's been months, I shouldn't be having this feeling. But in reality, there really isn't a shouldn't, it's just that is how we're feeling. But we're hard on ourselves because we don't wanna give ourselves the space to grieve. But once you practice being kinder and offering compassion to yourself, you can acknowledge like, okay, today I my grief is coming through. Here's how I can nurture that grief and give it the attention it needs to be able to move past today and to feel better about where I'm at. So today in Jennifer's story, we are going to be talking about The idea that it is important to recognize what we're feeling and instead of ignoring our feelings, to acknowledge them and walk through them and learn how to cope with them. So we are going to get into Jennifer's interview right after this message. Want to be a guest on a future episode of the Infertile Millennial podcast? Break the stigma and share your incredible story. Whether you've struggled with infertility, are currently going through fertility treatments, or have experienced pregnancy or infant loss, your story is important and may help listeners feel seen, heard, and validated. To apply now for a future spot, email us at emily at now. Are you or someone you know struggling with infertility or pregnancy loss? Shop Infertile Millennial is a dedicated gift shop to show your support, send a little sunshine, remind yourself of the warrior in you, or offer encouragement to someone you know struggling with infertility. Gifts for those grieving pregnancy loss, experiencing infertility, or going through fertility treatments to remind you of your strength and bravery. Shop now at www.infertilemillennial.com. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on and sharing your story. Well, I'm really glad that you decided to open up and share your story with me and with anybody who's going to listen. I think that's really brave of you. So thank you for taking the time to do that today.
1: Thanks for having me. Of course.
0: So why don't we get started off with you telling us about yourself and any early indications of fertility problems before you were trying to conceive? I'm 39. I work
1: in community mental health. Uh, I've been doing that for about seven years. And uh, prior to that, I was a bartender and worked my way through college. I went to college late and had a few roadblocks along the way, but I spend most of my time helping others kind of work through their, their trauma or their mental health issues. And it's funny as I look back on my own kind of journey that I've not really taken care of myself. Like now that I think about it, you know, it took me until recently in the last few months to realize the same things that I try to help my clients realize that it's okay to focus on you. It's okay to take care of you. So that's something that I've always kind of struggled with. And I think I probably struggle with that even going back into my like teenage years especially with like my period and understanding what was normal and what wasn't normal and when it's okay to say something my my mom and my aunts they did not struggle at all to get pregnant Um, I think one of them had a miscarriage along the way and that was in like the 80s but it was just not something we really talked about growing up to say that I also want to say my mom has always been super supportive you know Um, I probably could have talked to her about it I just didn't because I didn't know it was something you were supposed to talk about. So, you know, I hit like 19, 20, 21 and my periods were terrible. Even in high school and middle school, like first few I had, they would put me out of school for a day or two. I think my parents, I was probably pretty dramatic as a teenager and uh, not probably I was. So they didn't really have anything to gauge it on. Like, am I being dramatic and not wanting to go to school because I'm a middle school girl? Or is there actually something wrong? And I never really advocated for there actually being something wrong. So, you know, they didn't take me to the gynecologist, you know, early. And I hit 20 and um, scheduled my first appointment with my best friend. She went to the gynecologist for the first time and I went to the same doctor for the first time. And we tell this story now and our husbands are like, you were in the room with your friend, like the gynecologist for the first time? Like, yeah, like that's weird. We know that now. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think we both were trying to make a very uncomfortable situation less uncomfortable. And so anyway, yeah, I went very first time having a pat smear, very first time talking to a man about, you know, my sexuality and my body, Um, you know, so um, we started talking about my periods and how they went and how heavy they were and how painful they were. And he immediately said, I think you have endometriosis. And of course, I didn't know what that was. And I was like, okay, kind of not even realizing how that would affect me moving forward. I just said, okay. And he said, from what you're saying and from what I see during the exam, I think we need to go in and, and surgically look around and see what's going on. I am 20 years old. I, I don't have a serious boyfriend. I don't, I'm not even thinking about fertility in kids. I just know that sometimes when I stand up like it's like the floodgate's open and I, I think by that point I'm realizing that's not the way everyone is and that everyone doesn't miss work uh, in school you know the first three days that they're on their period. So we scheduled surgery and the first surgery I had it was a laparoscopic procedure. it was outpatient you know in and out in like an hour. And I just remember when I woke up, my mom was in tears and I thought, oh my God, did I die? (laughs) Like what happened? You know? And so the nurse and my mom were kind of whispering to each other. And I just remember thinking, this is weird. Like something is weird. And so um, my doctor who was amazing, especially for that time in my life and the things that he would go through with me you know, sat me down and explained to me that it was stage four endometriosis. And he felt like as soon as medically I could go back under, he wanted to take me under for like a real legit stay in the hospital, um, cut you open type surgery. Uh, and he explained to us, you know, what he saw. I had chocolate cysts that had developed. And and basically, for those that don't know, your ovaries should be pink, like strawberry milk is the way he described it. And um. A lot of the tissue around my ovaries and fallopian tubes, it looked like chocolate milk, so obviously it was not healthy. Anymore. Six weeks, he said he didn't want to put me under anesthesia again for six weeks. And so, six weeks later, mind you, that first surgery was the first surgery I'd ever had. I've never broken a bone, never had much more than a couple stitches before in my life. So, it was pretty traumatic. Now that I think back on it, you know, you go to the doctor for the first time, then you have surgery two weeks later, then you come out of that and everyone's crying and then you go back in and have it again. Um, But they did uh, like a hip to hip incision when I went back in for surgery. And when I woke up, the friend that went with me to, we went together for our first appointment. She and my mom were both in the room and they were both crying when I woke up. uh, He told me that he had to take my over one of my ovaries and one of my tubes um, because it was not salvageable. I think even then I didn't, I didn't understand the gravity of what that meant. I just knew I had two. I wasn't ready to have kids. Like, you know, I had a boyfriend by that point, but it wasn't serious, you know? So it was just, it was, it was, it was a strange and
0: scary time. So you were 20 years old when you got your first gyne, or when you went to your first gynecologist. And then that, at that appointment, you were then told, okay, I have endometriosis. And you didn't really understand what that meant. And first of all, I want to say I'm actually very surprised that your doctor didn't just brush you off right away and say, oh, you're fine. It actually does surprise me in a good way that your doctor was like, okay, there's something wrong. Let's look into this. That doesn't happen a lot, especially when you're so young and it was your first appointment. I feel like that's so rare to find someone who will want to look into it so quickly. And then, so like you said, six, how many weeks later did you have your first surgery? It was about
1: two weeks later. He put me on his surgical rotation, the very first appointment that he
0: had. Now, was was that a lapar? Was that a laparoscopy, or was that something different? It was a
1: laparoscopy. Um, it was so. I mean, think back. This is like almost twenty years ago. So you know, you said that you were surprised that even now, I think a doctor to take someone that young, that serious, the first time they meet them is even unheard of now when when there is so much more awareness than there was then. But even 20 years ago, um, you know, I think I it was a blessing that I had the doctor that I had. He had treated a younger girl than me about four years before that. She was 17 and her endometriosis was so bad they couldn't save anything. And he had to do a full hysterectomy on her at 17. And I remember talking to him after the surgery and he's explaining all these things to me and really explaining, you know, what it is. And and again, explaining what it is and how it works. And, you know, cause I was probably 35 before I really understood it, you know? Um, and explained that he did not want me to have to go through that. He wanted me to have options that she never had. And I really have to give him a lot of credit because if it wasn't for him, being so conservative then, you know, I've been told by, I've seen many a doctor since then and several of them have said that they would not have been that conservative. They would have taken both ovaries, both tubes, like, because the other one wasn't in great shape. He was just trying to give me the best chance that he could. I think I got a little off track so I don't remember exactly. No, you're fine.
0: So you're okay. Um, so you had that first procedure and then six weeks later he was like, okay, I, we need to go in and do something deeper because to him that wasn't enough. So you're now, are you still 20 at this age or were you 21 yet? Were you still 20? I was 20. So I turned 21
1: in the hospital Okay. Uh, I was in the hospital for five days. And this is after that six, the surgery six weeks later?
0: hmm Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, so they did like a, a hip-to-hip incision and had to cut through my abdominal wall. Kind of very similar to what they do when you have, like, a cesarean. Pulled everything out and put everything back in kind of a thing. Um, So it was a pretty invasive procedure. And then I was in hospital for five days.
0: Especially, too, with you, how young you were, and then also how quickly all of that happened for you. I feel like that had to be a lot to take in at one time. Yes, and I didn't realize... Then, and it took
1: me many years, like 10 years to really realize how big of an effect, how big of a negative effect, me not, this is kind of prominent through my story, me not knowing that I should be okay with feeling away (laughs) and, and asking questions and getting more help than what was just offered, you know, it's only recently that I've learned to advocate for that type of need for myself. But yeah, it was, it was, it was really, it was a difficult year, um, you know, after that, that surgery. And then immediately, as soon as I got home, they put me on two, almost two years of Lupron, Lupron, Depolupron. So I was getting monthly injections. So not only did they just take out an ovary and a tube that was not really expected when I went in, we didn't really know what to expect when I went in. So when I came out and woke up, I didn't know that I didn't have it. He did what he thought was best you know, in there and then, you know, to have to try to process what that really means and not really know how to do that and then immediately be thrown into menopause, medication-induced menopause for almost two years.
0: So what exactly does that injection do? It just kind of like, does it prevent you from ovulating or what exactly does the medication do that they gave you?
1: I was taking a monthly shot. I know there's several different forms of Lupron. So I know anybody that's going through IVF or talking to doctors about doing that, you'll hear about Lubron a lot, I'm sure, but this is a monthly injection and it just suppresses all of your estrogen. Um, And it does it in a somewhat unnatural way. Um, So you really feel those effects of like night sweats and insomnia. You know, I'd never really taken any medication before that either. So I didn't really know how medicine affected me. So the, you know, the doctor, that was a pretty big surgery, sent me home with like narcotic heavy duty pain meds. You know, even back then they didn't They didn't talk a lot about what that did to you. And then, you know, I'm going through mood swings like our moms and grandmas do when they're going through menopause and not really understanding that. My mom was, was, she's only 20 years older than me. So she hadn't even gone through menopause at that point. Like it was just a really disruptive all around time.
0: So you're like 21 you already had an ovary removed, already had a tube removed and now you're basically going through like an early menopause all in the same couple week period, which is quite a lot. How did you pro- how did you process and recover after that surgery? Like what exa- what ended up what did you end up doing to help yourself? recover? No, nothing healthy.
1: I think the toll, the emotional toll started to really hit home what had happened and how it could have lingering and long-term effects. Um, Over the course of that That next year after those surgeries, the doctor talked a lot about the reasons that we were doing the medicines and things was to give me the best chance at being able to conceive when and if I decided that was something I wanted to do. And, you know, after hearing that several times, I think it started to hit home that. That might not be something that I could do easily or even at all. That young, you know, I think our our worth is kind of tied to that a little bit unless you make it something else. You know, I think society kind of ties you to uh, what you can do as naturally as a woman. and you know the the realization that that wasn't happening. It really started to home, and I was not able to handle that very well, <laughs> to be honest. The doctors were really great about helping me to manage any like side effects from the surgeries, but with that also came lots of medicines that I probably really didn't need to be taken long term. And through that, I, I, you know, became physically addicted to the pain meds, and then. I think also emotionally, because it kind of suppressed that sadness um, and the depression that I was really in and made me not really think about it too much. So for several years after that, I really struggled with that. And, you know, I think it kind of hindered my progress and healing emotionally and kind of get into a place where I I was okay with who I was. But, you know, I I know now that it also helped me become who I am today and helps me kind of take the path like my career path that I'm in. So I, you know, I know there's some good there somewhere, but it was a really, really difficult time.
0: If you don't mind, do you want to kind of go into more detail about uh, your struggle with addiction from all of that?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I can. It's, uh, (laughs) it's funny because had I not been through some of those things, I would have never, my, my family life, my my life growing up, I would have never been exposed naturally to um you know, drug use in general, much less prescription drug abuse. That was you know is not something that I saw in my family unit at all or my friends growing up. but um because my doctor, I think he thought he was doing the best thing for me. He made pills readily available. and It got to a point where I couldn't function physically or emotionally without them. You know, I I dropped out of college in my mid-20s and uh, bartended for like seven years and, you know, kind of lived, my mom would say it would be a hard and fast lifestyle, (laughs) Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I got myself into a very abusive relationship that I let go on way too long—five um, years. You know, I think through all of those that my twenties, when I should have been able to grow and kind of figure out who I am, I was suppressing who I was and hiding from who I was. And you know, it took me a little while to get to a place where I was healthy again. And It's crazy. I got healthy and decided I'm not ever having kids. I'm not ever getting married. And I met my husband, (laughs) um, actually through his mother and we laughed because we didn't really like each other when we first met each other, but we kind of became friends. And that was like almost eight years ago. So a year after we met, we got married,
0: So we've been married for seven
1: years last month.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. Congrats. You mentioned to me in, uh, while we were talking earlier, that you actually did have more surgeries in your 20s. How many surgeries in the span of your 20s did you have?
1: It was five or six, um, I because it was either five or six. And I I had one at 30, and then another one just this past year. All but that one were laparoscopic. And, and the one that I had last year, they were able to do
0: with a robot,
1: so it was even less invasive. But yeah, think five or six. And I want to say it was six.
0: Okay. So you told us that you got married. Um, did you ever feel, how did, how exactly did you end up telling your husband that you may not be able to conceive as easy or did you not even really know it at that point either yet?
1: So I'd seen enough doctors cause I grew up in North Alabama. So my very first gynecologist was there. Um, and as I was trying to, you know, get myself healthy, um, when I was coming through all of the stuff that I went through in my twenties, I actually moved to Georgia to the Atlanta area just for a fresh start and to go back to school. And, um, so I'd seen, you know, gotten a new doctor here and seen her a couple times. And she had told me that she thought my tube was closed uh, just scar tissue and endometriosis, and then I had also had an MRI because I had I had really bad bronchitis that I couldn't shake. So, but when they did the MRI, they actually found endometriosis in my lung. It's everywhere in my abdomen. It grows on my lungs, on my colon, just on my spine. You know, I think when we realized that it was like everywhere, you know, my doctors and I, and that was before I met. Matt but I think I really it kind of sunk in how how serious it can be and then I think I also you know when Matt and I met we became friends first so we kind of talked about our life and we would do things like just go to the movies or just grab lunch you know it wasn't we weren't really dating our families would probably say we were but we never considered it that so we really gave ourselves room to get to know each other and at that point, I was comfortable enough with myself and my my past and everything to where I just, we just talked about it. Um, and he was always super supportive, you know,
0: and um, and very kind. So what advice would you give to someone who's dating someone and it's serious, but they know that like, hey, I might have issues conceiving. What advice would you give to them on how to tell their partner? Just be honest. I mean, I,
1: I don't know how else to really say that. I think this is one of those things that if you truly care about someone and love someone and them you, you have to give them space to be understanding and gracious. And then you have to give yourself space, <laughs> you know, and be gracious with yourself too, because it's just a part of you. If it was something that I had not been so straightforward with him about. Now, I was not straightforward with his family. You know, that was something we talked with them about a couple years later. I don't know that we would be where we are right now. I don't know that we would even be married. I think that probably it it would have been seen as a little bit deceitful. Um, but because it was something we were just, I would just talk to him about. You know, then we were able to experience everything else along the way together, instead of me by myself and kind of bringing him in on the tail end.
0: You know, knowing that you had endometriosis, what steps did you take in order to uh, start conceiving when you guys decided that you wanted to try?
1: So um, I think we've been married like maybe two years. Uh, So when we got married, we had both decided we were both back in school. Um, Matt's five years younger than me. So he had decided to go back to school and I was already in school. And so we kind of decided to that we didn't want to do anything until we could get through that because that was stressful enough. Being broke and married is hard enough you know, so we decided to wait. But um, once I graduated, I went and um, and saw a new doctor and she did the test where with the catheter with the dye where they run it through your uterus and then try to push it through your tube. It was probably one of the most painful things I've ever experienced because it would not go. And they kept trying to push it, but it just would not go. At that point, I remember, thankfully, I have a new doctor now because it was not a good experience. Uh, The first time I saw her, I told her, what you know, we were wanting to try to have kids and Um, And then, so she scheduled, you know, this appointment with the radiologist because it's done on an x-ray table and you're not put to sleep or anything normally, you're not really even given anything normally to help with any pain. So, you know, you're in a pretty vulnerable position laying there with people in the room, you know working on you and, and doing the procedure. And she just told me right there, legs up in the stirrups that your tube's closed. I can't do anything about it. And then walked out of the room and it was so kind of shocking after the gentle care I'd received with other doctors that, you know, we decided that was not the doctor for us. And, um, and I think it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth for the whole process of trying to conceive. So, um, I actually did not go and see another doctor outside of my yearly pap smears for like four years. It was it was just kind of traumatic. There was no like kid gloves and and you know, no kindness there. And I have heard a lot of your guests, the people that you've interviewed and in, talk about that that's something that we need, I think, especially as women going through something like this, and even men too going through this type of issue, you need a little bit of kindness. Um, even if you already kind of know there's a problem, you know, you still need a little bit of kindness when they talk to you about it. And so I've struggled for several years after that with, if I even wanted to do anything else, you know, did I even want to try anything else? I don't think we didn't know how bad the damage was at that point. Um, we didn't find that out until last year. You know, I think I didn't do enough. I could say also think I don't, I didn't know what all I could do. So even back in my twenties, freezing your eggs, wasn't something that was discussed as an option because at that point that might, would have been viable. Um, it would have been expensive, but it probably would have been an option for us then, you know, for me then. Um, but it wasn't something anybody really talked with me about. And even at that appointment six years ago, that wasn't something anyone offered to help me with either.
0: Yeah. It's really unfortunate that your first experience, somebody was just like, well, that's it. And like, didn't give you any sort of second option or nothing or any information about anything else that you could possibly do. So I feel like that had to be, I can understand you being like, okay, I, I guess no one wants to help me. So I guess I'm not interested right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what type of, what did you end up doing after that once you decided okay i think i want to look into this again what kind of treatment did you end up doing for that
1: last fall i started having just like uncontrollable periods and i've i, I take i've been taking birth control for a little while um mainly just to manage symptoms from the endometriosis and to kind of keep keep myself on a, on a kind of level but uh, you know, prior to that, I had not taken anything and we just never got pregnant. Not last fall, but the fall. So I guess that was 2019 in the fall. I called my doctor and I just said something isn't right. And so she brought me in and she did pap smear, read some blood work. And at that point, she tested my AMH. So just you know, my um, anti-malarian hormone that kind of gives an indication of where you're at with not necessarily egg quality, but just eggs in general. Like, are you producing them? Um, Because I didn't even know if I was ovulating. I have one ovary. And we didn't know if the other one had picked up um, that the slack from not having the two, and was ovulating every month, or if it was every other month, or even every three months. You know, we just didn't know. I tried some of the at home tests to kind of check, and I could not ever get any clear answers. I just knew I'd never gotten a positive pregnancy test. So um, she started me on some birth control to kind of level everything out, and um, I was having uncontrollable bleeding that would last for three or four weeks. So just to kind of get that under control and then referred me to um, a surgeon to have somebody check and see what was going on. Um, And then, you know, the start of 2020 was when COVID hit. So I was supposed to have surgery um, at the beginning of the, or at the end of 2019, but that was when they were kind of in Georgia's, he didn't want to do that because COVID was just getting started and so we we pushed it out till February, and then they were doing no elective procedures for a couple months. So it ended up being May of 2020. Uh, he went in like robotically and laparoscopically to do a couple of things. They were going to clean up the endometriosis. They use a laser to do that, and then he was going to try to open my fallopian tube with me under anesthesia. Uh, Because it had been so painful before awake, um, he thought, while you're there, we'll just see if we can get it open, you know? And unfortunately they were able to clean everything up, but my fallopian tube was knotted around my ovary. So not only they couldn't get it open, He was afraid of doing a lot of damage by messing with it at all. He said it looked like somebody had just like tied like sailor knots with my tube around my ovary. They weren't really able to fix anything. So he went in about and came out about the same place, you know. Um, And his first suggestion was, you know, you need to go to a reproductive endocrinologist. You need to go now. You're 38 years old and you need to go now. Yeah, I just remember him saying, you need to go now several times. (laughs) Um, Kind of to process process that a little bit before I made my first appointment with my RE.
0: So what ended up happening? What kind of testing did your RE have you do or what did they discover?
1: Tested, it feels like everything. I remember coming out of the lab feeling like they took all of my blood. (laughs) And I don't think I've ever seen so many little vials in those little grids before, but they tested everything from like lupus and things like that to see if there was like some kind of thing going on to my AMH. They did a lot of genetic testing to see if I was a carrier for anything. And, you know, going in, I, I didn't know anything. I just knew my doctor said I needed to come here. And so here I am. You want me to do all these things? Okay, I'll do them. At the time, really ask a lot of questions why. So, you know, we got all the tests back. And between April and August, my AMH had gone from 0.11 to 0.04. Pretty immediately, he was um, really concerned about not just because he had seen my records from the surgery earlier in May. He was concerned about a couple of things. I was 38 years old and apparently that's geriatric in the pregnancy world. And then also your egg quality at that age, even if you have a ton of eggs, the quality starts to decline. But for me, he was really concerned about how, I mean, if I could even produce any worth retrieving. So, you know, he gave us all of our options, including going through an egg retrieval, seeing what happened, using a donor, uh, donor eggs, or even, he said, the possibility of a donor embryo if we wanted to go that route. But honestly, at that point, I didn't even really know what those two things were. You know, it wasn't something I'd been talked to a lot about or, or anything. My husband and I just knew that whatever we did in Georgia, covering fertility is not mandated for your insurance. So whatever we decided to do, I have a great job and great insurance, but it covers nothing for fertility treatments. Um, It covers some diagnostic stuff. So we just decided whatever we decided on, it was going to have to be the thing we were doing. um, And we only really got the one shot. So we weighed our options, uh, talked about a little bit. And oddly enough, we were, I think, both on the same page and felt a lot of peace about going forward with donor eggs. I didn't even, like I said, I didn't even know that was a thing. I think I knew people did it, but I didn't really know like what happened or how it worked or, um, and I definitely at that time didn't know anyone that I thought had, had done that. It was kind of a taboo untalked about uncharted territory. I think for all of us,
0: do you remember what it felt like for you learning that you can't use your own eggs? Like, did you have any feeling towards that? Or were you sort of just like, okay, so so now what? Do you remember what that felt like?
1: I had all of these appointments with our doctor on Zoom. Um, so we never actually met him until I never met. My husband still not ever met him because of COVID protocols, but I never didn't even see him in person until January. So we were sitting around the kitchen table on our lunch break and I just remember thinking, I know I want to be a mom. I think I had already processed the fact that I might not ever be able to give birth. I think that is what I struggled with all during my 20s. I might not ever be able to do the thing that that women, since the dawn of time, have been responsible for the one thing that we're responsible for doing that I'm not going to be able to do. So I'd already felt broken about that. And I think finally letting myself get to a place where I asked like a real professional in this field for help was me. And I think I'm just now realizing this. That's so weird. Was me finally being okay with whatever happened. I knew that we wanted a family. We both knew that. We talked about it. Um, we talked about it over the years as we had you know negative pregnancy tests after negative pregnancy test. But I think I just, finally, I was at a place like, I can maybe give birth. Like, we talked about adoption, like adopting a baby, too. Like, that was something we talked about, also not covered by insurance, and also something you have to pay cash for. And my cousin had, you know, recently adopted a little boy, and she's really honest with us about the cost. And it was about twice as much as what we're paying for our donor eggs
0: and our 5 frozen embryo transfers you know I think a lot of people I think a lot of people don't understand that and so they all they are like jump on you like well why don't you just adopt if you have to use someone else's eggs or someone else's sperm and it's like because it's still so much cheaper to do it that way than it is to adopt which is crazy it shouldn't be that way but for some reason it is so it's not like people are like no I don't want to adopt it's like no like this is what I can afford and. People don't understand that.
1: I um So I work for the, the Georgia Mental Health System. It's like the health department for mental health. And I say that because I work with a vulnerable population, but I also have a little bit of a past. I went through a lot of things in my 20s, some of them not so proud of, but again, got me to where I am today. And so I'm very grateful for being able to come through them. But then I think, I don't know if I could. Like, i'm not I'm not a hardened criminal, and I don't mean to, for it to come across that way, but they just just the things that they ask. It's very invasive process. and And even my I remember my cousin, her husband's a doctor, and you know, they were vetted for a year to adopt their their little boy it just felt like it just felt like it was like unreachable you know financially and every other way so i don't know i guess i yeah i had kind of gotten through the shock of you know 20 years of realizing that this may never happen to someone finally giving me like well, this could happen and here's how. So it's like, I guess I felt a little bit of relief when he finally offered an option that we felt was doable.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I totally, I feel like I understand you. And I feel like some people wouldn't understand that. But when you go through this process, you're like, I know it sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually really relieving to have some type of an answer. And then, because it helps you move forward with whatever you choose to do, it gives you some type of an answer. So... I'd love to know like a little bit about your experience with adopting donor eggs because I have not spoken to anyone who's done that. And I'm just really curious about what that process is like. Yeah. So
1: I went in there not knowing anything, like nothing. Um, my clinic's really great They're Um, they've been doing IVF since like, I don't know, before I even knew there was an IVF, probably as long as I've been alive, I think 35, 38 years. So, you know, we felt really comfortable with them. Our doctor has been you know, dealing with fertility for 20 years, specifically at this clinic. So, you know, when he offered that, we felt great. And then, you know, they offer, um, and probably a lot of clinics do this. I don't know. Patient coordinator was so helpful. So she just walked us through every step of the process. Um, They sent out, you know, a list of things that we had to do. So when you go and you deal with any type of donor, tissue, they call it. You have to do a few extra steps that traditional IVF doesn't have to go through. So we had to go through, they call it a psychological evaluation, but really it's you sit down with a psychologist or a clinical social worker that specializes in fertility and infertility issues and really discuss like the meat and potatoes about like what you're about to do. Very similar to what people go through when they adopt a baby. You know, we talked with them, we did a ton more tests. My husband had to do like a, a semen sample again. He did that at the beginning to make sure that there weren't any issues on both sides. Um, and fortunately for us, he's super healthy. So, and then so he had to do that again. Um, and then he had to do all the genetic testing because when you're choosing a donor, part of what you're choosing is, is trying to choose a donor that is a good match um, because a lot of times, traditionally, you may not have that medically a good match. So, you may, you know, traditional IVF and I guess even pregnancies, you know, you may have both partners that are carriers for certain diseases and um, like pediatric blindness or kidney disease and things like that. So, they tested him extensively for those things Um, and then we came up with a list of things that we needed to vet Potential donors against because not to say we would not be super grateful for any baby that we have from this process, but if you have the opportunity to eliminate certain genetic disorders, you're obviously going to try to do that before you ever get started. So, our clinic has a works with the My Egg Bank, I think it's a national egg registry for donor eggs. And then they also have their own personal donors that they register with my egg bank. And so when we were trying to decide, I don't know if people, some people may not know, but when you choose your fertility package, so to speak, you you know, they give you a whole bunch of options and it's the same way with donor eggs. So we chose the, a live Birth guarantee, basically. Um, so, with our funds that we paid the clinic, we got um, six donor eggs, and then up to five cycles, uh, transfer cycles, um, over the course of two years. And if we don't have a live baby, or in that two years in those cycles, then um, we should get a portion of our our money back to try to, you know, put towards whatever we decide to do next if this doesn't work.
0: That's really nice. I've heard of that before and um, I don't think my clinic does that but I think that's really great that some do just because it it's scary to spend all that money and do all that stuff to your body and then nothing comes out of it. So I'm glad that you have some sort of maybe something that helps ease your mind a little bit about whatever happens, you know, like it, hopefully that does help ease your mind a little bit. It does. It's almost like having
1: insurance. That's the way the doctor described it when we were talking through you know, the packages. He said, it's kind of like having insurance. It doesn't guarantee you anything. It doesn't guarantee you a result because technically they can't do that. <laughs> you know, it, it is biology at some point, but um, it did make us feel like maybe if at the end of the day, this is not what's supposed to happen for us, then we do still have some options and
0: choices later. Yeah, absolutely. So what ended up happening with that embryo transfer?
1: So I had my first transfer on January the 5th, 2021. So we got started at the clinic in August in the middle of COVID. Luckily, my clinic was taking new patients then. <laughs> A lot of clinics stopped during COVID. So, um, you know, we got, we were able to you know, work through our checklist really quick, get all of our testing done, do our evaluations. We chose our donor in October and I started transfer protocol meds in December about, I guess, a week and a half into my estrogen and my meds. My husband got COVID. Luckily, I didn't. So we quarantined him and in the bedroom and I um, continued on taking COVID tests because if you have a positive COVID test, they cancel your cycle. That doesn't seem like a big deal until you've paid for your medicine. (laughs) And that feels like a big deal at that point. And also it's my first cycle. I'm super excited. I remember just being so excited and so full of hope and just like sure this thing was going to work because my doctor was super confident he he said, your uterus is great. You know, we could have you pregnant by the first of the year. And I like took that to heart. Not that we could, like I kind of took that as we will, you know. So I was really excited, gave myself my progesterone injections. The whole time I was going through all the meds, my husband was sick. He was sick for like three and a half weeks with COVID. He didn't even get to take me to my transfer. I had to do that alone. So it was just kind of mixed bag of emotions of like stress because I really did kind of carry a lot of that myself during that cycle. But I had my first transfer on the 5th of January in 2021. I got my very first positive pregnancy test, which was super exciting. You know, I think that gave me, it gave me hope, but it also made me feel like, well, it works the
0: first time. Like I don't have
1: anything else to worry about,
0: you know? How soon after your transfer did you get a positive test or did you wait until your beta? I did not wait. I think I bought out Amazon.
1: (laughs) 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 I mean, So that whole time my doctor had me quarantined. So I was working from home. So I was not doing my normal work schedule. I was at home. I was kind of by myself because Matt was sick and it was just like, all I could think about. So I started testing. I think it was like day three or day four and immediately got. It was a faint line, but every day after that it got darker and got darker and got darker. Um, So when I went in, I was fairly certain it was actually right. You know, there's a little bit of like doubt in your mind when you go in for that lab that some that the tests were broken. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was positive. I think my first beta was like 161. So the doc, the nurse felt really good about that. Went in for my second, you know, three days later, and it was over a 1000. So they felt good about that. I, it's funny, you know, I found you during that kind of in between time when we were going through our, like our checklist and kind of getting all of our stuff together and I didn't know anything about IVF except what the nurses were telling me. So, it was, you know, I I watched some of your vlogs and started listening to like podcasts and and things as those started to come out. And I remember you saying that you felt pregnancy symptoms and like vivid dreams and and things like that. And I, that's what I was starting to experience. And I just thought this is so cool. You know, I mean, I've had vivid dreams before, but nothing like this, you know, and it was like just really intense and amazing. And then I went for my third beta and it went up three points, you know, during that time. Also, I didn't know. I mean, the now I know you need to ask a ton of questions about your meds, but my, my medication protocol, they started, they got it, they kind of got it messed up a little bit in what would technically, I think, be week five of pregnancy, they started to wean me off of progesterone, which is not good.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it was about three days later that I went in for that beta and everything kind of just stalled. Yeah. So I ended up miscarrying. Um, and yeah. So that was, um, It's like an intense high to a very intense low.
0: So they told you to stop taking progesterone?
1: Yeah, something happened. Um, So our clinic has an online portal uh, where they, you know, list our protocols. And there was some kind of glitch and it had my week 10 Med list at like week five, week six, so I I did realize that wasn't right right about the time I was going in for that lab work, but it wasn't soon. I mean, I should have asked a question when it didn't look right, you know, Um, which is something I now know, like if anything doesn't look right or feel right, I'm the first one to bother my nurse. (laughs) I don't, I've asked like, do we think that's why? And they say they don't know, you know, it could have been what they call a chemical pregnancy. It could have been, you know, med related. It, it, It just didn't,
0: that one didn't work for us. I feel like that number is so high for it to have been a chemical. Don't you feel the same? I just feel like usually chemicals are a lot lower and a thousand is like, I was like, wow, that was, that jumped really high. So I hope it's not because of their mistake. You know what I mean? But
1: I did. Yeah. I remember asking my nurse, like, so what happens now? You know, like, so we'll bring you back in. In two days, and we'll test again. At that point, my protocol had gotten worked back out, and I was running the right dosages of everything. Progesterone is so important in early pregnancy; it's what maintains that pregnancy. And even though I think they had told me that, did what they t- what it, my paper told me to do. You know, um, when the doctor finally told me to stop taking my medicine, I think I had to take it for another two weeks, and they tested like every couple of days just to see. And it just kind of stalled. But it's like at that point, I wasn't dealing with any of the same things I was dealing with a few weeks before that. No vivid dreams. They just stopped altogether one day. Um, And then, you know, none of the other symptoms, pregnancy symptoms that I had experienced over those first few weeks, they were all gone too. I don't think I understood how difficult that was going to be to experience
0: that. How did you cope with the news of your miscarriage and miscarrying? I didn't <laughs> at all. I remember asking the nurse, okay, so when do
1: we get to do this again? Like, I, I because I think sometimes even the best nurses forget what they're doing, if that makes sense. Um, I love my nursing team. I have two that I deal with all the time, and they are amazing. I actually, like my doctor, he's um, kind of brash, but just real cut and dry. So I don't ever really have any questions about where I stand. So even with the medication mix up, I I felt comfortable staying with them. Um, probably a lot of people wouldn't have. Um, my husband left it up to me. He wanted me to be the most comfortable, but I just remember asking them what out what to expect, and she said a heavy period, and I was like, oh well if that's all this is, then when do we get to do this again? Like getting older, I'm ready to do this. I want to do this again. And um, they explain, you know, you have to wait until your HCG is negative and, you know, all these things. But I don't think I really understood or allowed myself to feel the things that come with a miscarriage and seeing what was going to be your baby there like it was very evident and it was not a heavy period and it was very intense and both emotionally and physically it was not at all what i thought it would be um but i just like pushed it all down like i had done for 20 years and you know went and took my little blood tests and um when they told me it was negative i was like all right let's schedule this next one and it was way too soon. It was just, it was two months later. You know, it was just way too soon.
0: So now you told me that you did a f- another frozen embryo transfer. So can you tell us about that next one? So you So you're now two months past your miscarriage. Is that when you start to do your frozen embryo transfer?
1: Yeah, so I got the go-ahead like mid-March and then scheduling sometimes puts you out a little bit further. So we scheduled it. It was, like the, it was scheduled for the end of April. I was not excited. I was not positive thinking about it. Um, hindsight, I should have just waited, you know, but I didn't because got to have this baby now you know it's like we need this baby now i you know started my meds and um i was really struggling on so many levels during that whole transfer cycle i wasn't really talking to my family i, mean, I wasn't really even talking to my husband and he's my best friend like i just wasn't talking about anything about how i felt about I I didn't even want to talk about what I wanted for dinner. I just did not want to be around people. You know, I was depressed and anxious and I wasn't sleeping. And um, so that's how I went into my second transfer cycle was and it did not implant. Um, And I remember. When the nurse called after my first beta to tell me that it was negative, I just said, I know, like I already knew because I don't think I was in a place where that's what needed to be happening. And I feel like it was kind of like a gracious act from God that that made it that way, because I don't know that I would have been prepared to deal with anything else that happened, you know, after that. So, um, yeah, our second transfer, it just didn't implant. Um, The doctor didn't really have a reason. So donor eggs are. the process is usually a, a good bit more expensive than just traditional IVF because you do, you adopt the donor eggs, but you do pay the clinic, or the facility agency or whatnot for the testing and storage and things like that, that the donor went through. So it does make it a little bit more expensive. So oftentimes they don't do genetic testing. So we did not test our embryos. The doctor felt really good that they were healthy. They do extensive testing on the donors, even more than they did on my husband and I at the beginning of the process. And he just, you know, he felt like we we could do it if we wanted to. But so there really wasn't an answer as to why. Um, it didn't work it just didn't
0: work so where are you now in your journey because so you said that you did your transfer end of april and then i'm assuming like 10 days later you got the news that it failed so where are you now it failed and
1: then i went in for some just update lab work because it had been like eight months since my initial labs and they found out um ca 125 is a a protein marker in your blood that signifies elevated i don't really know how to explain it but it signifies that your endometriosis or for some people adenomyosis is just out of control um and fertility docs at least the ones at our clinic they don't like to do another transfer until it's below 30 they consider that to be kind of a healthy place for your uterus and your body And after that second transfer, mine was at 270. They were really concerned about at that point in time, like what was causing it to elevate. It could have been the transfer meds because estrogen aggravates endometriosis. So we just took a few months off. We kind of tossed around a little bit about taking some medicine to try to help damper it and just really decided, let's just get on some birth control. a few months and um and we monitored it my ca 125 every four weeks until it got down below 30 and so it did finally. Uh, so yeah, my third transfer is not this coming Friday, but next Friday. So all that transferred since I spoke to you originally, <laughs> we didn't know when we were going to do it. So I start my progesterone on Sunday, and um, I go in for my first lining check tomorrow morning real early. So hopefully everything looks good where we can keep going with, with, our, with our
0: transfer on the 13th. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm incredibly excited for you, to, and hopefully, you know, do you have any change of a protocol at all this time or are they going to keep it kind of the same?
1: We're going to keep it with, with what really worked the first time. While our insurance isn't covering any of the treatments, we've had to pay for all that out of pocket they've been really great about covering our meds. I know a lot of people don't get lucky like that. And so um, we talked a little bit about doing, changing up the method for the progesterone. Insurance is covering it and it worked the first time. So we're just, it's a traditional transfer protocol with estrogen pills and patches and then progesterone shots in the bum. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, hopefully, you know, everything works out. We've talked about So each of our other transfers, we did one embryo, Um, our clinic, and especially our doctor is unless he feels age or maybe embryo quality dictates the need to do two, he, he likes to just do one, which I was fine with, but I think we're going to try to do two this time. I keep saying it, but I'm 39. I have to come to grips with that myself here uh, that, um, you know, and, and he feels like it might give us. You know, a little bit of a higher chance that at least one will implant and carry through. So I mean, I'm we're hopeful. I think I'm in a much better place now than I was back in March. I started going to therapy and I cannot say enough things about doing that when you're going through this process. I have started to be more authentic with how I feel. The ups and the downs, and I think the roadblock with um, the elevated. Uh, c a one twenty five, it kind of taught me that none of this is it's not a straight line. It's like up and down crazy mountains and you'll probably fall into a couple lakes along the way. and it may or may not work anytime or ever or and and I've just had to learn learn how to be okay with that. And I think I'm finally in a place where I feel a little bit of peace about about that since. For the first time in like nine months is what it feels like,
0: (laughs) you know? Yeah, I think it takes, I think everybody starts out like that when they first go into their fertility journey and and especially going through fertility treatments is that you go in thinking one thing and that, you know, the smallest change you get upset and emotional about and you think that everything's ruined and then you realize, you know, what, like it doesn't matter how I react because it's going to happen the way that they're going, the doctors are going to have you do the treatment or whatever they think is best, that is the way that it's going to happen. And no amount of stressing about it or getting anxious about it is going to change the outcome. So I think it took like even me a really long time to learn like, I just have to take this day by day because if I don't, then I'm going to be constantly consumed in anxiety and stress and worry. And oftentimes I've found that the things I worried about the most it all ended up okay. So that's I think something we yeah, we all have to learn that night. And, and I think it just takes time as you go through it to realize that. But I think that's a common thing that we all go through. Yeah, it's definitely been a
1: year of intense growth. I think for me personally, I think for my marriage, which, I mean, I know I'm from the inside (laughs) of that pair, but I mean, we have a really great relationship. And I think fertility in general and infertility issues and these struggles, they can make or break you as as a couple, um, as a partnership. And I'm just really grateful that, and I know we're not through it, and I, I don't mean to sound like that, but I'm just really grateful that my husband has given me the the grace to kind of ebb and flow my own way with it to start he he's he's also learned to tell me like hey you need to calm down (laughs) you you need to just simmer down a little bit and i know when i when he says that that it's pretty intense that i've gotten to this like you know defcon kind of level of of insane you know um And it's not hormone related. It's like all in my head related where I'm just like ruminating on things that, you know, it's like you said, that usually don't really need to be thought about. I'm just really grateful that we've been able to go through this together. He's a good partner, especially through something like this.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, Before I let you go, I wanted to know if you had any tips on coping with infertility, especially for someone who maybe is... A, obviously really struggling, but B, learning that they're dealing with infertility for the first time.
1: I think, yeah, so advocate for yourself and ask questions. Like no one is going to ask questions for you. No one is going to get the information that you need, whatever that is, you know, advocate for yourself. If you don't feel comfortable, then you need a new, a new, a new doctor, You know, you need to feel comfortable with telling them you're not okay with something. You need to feel comfortable with telling them you are, and you need to be your biggest advocate. Even outside of your spouse, your partner, your family, you need to be your biggest advocate. I've had to learn how to do that over the last year. Advocate for myself and for my family. And um, that's not something that I was good at, and it's something I had to force myself to do. But I think it's so important, you know? And then also... Give yourself some grace (laughs) to just experience however you have to experience this journey. Um, It's going to be hard. Some of it might be good. Some of it might not be good. All of it might be terrible. And, you know, give yourself some space and some grace to really feel that and to deal with it. spent like 20 years almost not really dealing with it. Instead of letting myself feel things and and then taking a step, I just chose to, you know, put up a wall and, and not worry about it because it is hard. Um, and I think, you know, you need to have grace with yourself and just remember that you're not alone. I thought I think I didn't ever really talk about this before because I thought I was alone. Like it wasn't until the last year that I realized I was one in eight <laughs> and now one in four. Like, that's so not alone. So, however, you need to find community and support that works for you, you need to find that. Some people will find that through support groups, some through therapy um, family, but whatever you need to, to feel supported because you're not alone.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with that. I feel like finding a community is so important. And I personally feel that like, once I started opening up, I just felt like a huge weight was lifted. Like, it's almost like you're giving yourself that like, you know what, whatever happens now I'm okay with it. But when you struggle alone, it's almost you're like, you're like, no, this has to happen or I'll be upset forever. And I think it's great to finally, like, just open up, share your truth and find a community who understands and supports you.
1: You know, I guess I thought that they might, this community might be um, judgmental for some reason. It's just women, like, you know, but it's so not that. And um, listening to your guests talk about the things they've gone through, it's, helped me feel definitely not alone, but I've been able to relate to so much, you know, and, um, it's actually, it helps me work through some of those daily kind of ups and downs that you have when you go through this stuff. I wish I had done this a lot sooner (laughs) you know, talked and shared and, um, and things, but you know, you do what you do when you're ready.
0: Yeah. For sure. Well, thank you so much for taking time to sit down and share your story with me. I like truly do appreciate it. And I feel like somebody is going to relate. I don't even think we've really touched on endometriosis much on the podcast. So it was great that you were able to share your story because endometriosis, a lot of people have it. And it's something that people don't even realize they have for years. And so I think you talking about the signs and explaining like why you thought like something might be wrong is really important. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that is it for today's episode. Once again, thank you so much Jennifer for coming on and bravely sharing your story. I know that someone out there listening is going to connect with it in some way, shape or form. And again, if you want to become a guest on the podcast, make sure to send an email to emily at infertilemillennial.com and I'll see you guys in the next episode.